Good morning. That was weak, but we'll, we'll let it pass today. Oh, we're just so glad you guys came to worship with us today. Um, just a few announcements. I always write them down because I always forget one, so we'll see what happens. Um, church nursery, down the hall, that direction. If you're interested in kids or can tolerate kids for 45 minutes, Jen White's looking for help. She's up here. Reach out to her um, if you want to jump in that rotation. It's a four-week rotation right now, so it's once a month you'd be in there. Um, if you, I say it every time I'm up here. If you want to join the email chain, let us know. We'll get you on there. If you think you're on it and you're not getting the emails, you aren't on there. Let us know. We'll get you on. We'll get you plugged in. Um, three prayer requests I want to bring to our attention real quick. Uh, Ralph Clausen's in the hospital, still out in California. He went in. He had pneumonia. He got intubated. He's having a pretty rough go of it. So you can pray for Ralph and Connie. I think Tammy's out there now with them. She's in Minnesota. Okay. Eunice. Okay. Pray for that family. Both sides of the in-laws are having a rough go right now. Um, Jen Williams couldn't be here today, but wanted to pass along her thanks for the prayers about her um, struggle she's been having. Um, she's decided to stay home and rest and kind of recoup a little bit, so let's keep praying for her. Jim Miner is home. Obviously not here today, but he's resting, but he is home. He got home yesterday. Um, he's trying to manage pain and get, the, get that squared away for now, but he is home, which is exciting. Sunday school is still happening. Awana and Rise are happening this Wednesday. Men's study is the second and fourth Sundays of the month, which if you're counting, or second and fourth Saturdays, excuse me, and if you're counting, that fourth Saturday was yesterday. So if you missed it yesterday, I was there. It'll be the second Saturday of next month. Um, Josh Abbott or Jim Miner are your contacts for that. Women's ministry is all in the email to look through. Um, Thursday night prayer meetings are still going. The Thursday day prayer meetings are still happening. Um, if you're around and want to come in, church is unlocked during the time on Thursday. The prayer binder is above the freezer in the kitchen. February 25th will be Lee Smith's, one of his last Sundays here. We decided with all the help he gave us as interiming that we do a card shower form if you're interested. There's a basket in the church office on the little wooden table by the old quilt. If you want to just throw a card in there, we'll be giving those to Lee the 25th. Um, as far as donations go, if you wish to donate directly to the third party that we talked about two weeks ago, write that in your payment on your memo line, and we'll make sure that gets to that ministry. As far as the grace contract, the deacons did receive that this last week. We've been going through it with council to get that worked out. Once we get it signed and returned to grace, we'll start that partnership with them. The big thing is next weekend, the 17th and 18th, um, David Wick will be down candidating for the interim position through IPM. That Sunday, all the adults and kids who can handle it will be in here to listen to Dave a little bit, give his testimony, a little meet and greet, question and answer. We will have child care set up in the nursery if your kids can't handle that. We're trying to limit that to kindergarten through second grade. If you're K2 or below K, we'll have that available for you. Otherwise, we're going to try and be in here and listen to what Pastor Wick has to share. And he'll be preaching that message during Sunday service. We're going to do potluck after that. So we can continue to fellowship with him. And then we'll discuss that next week on the decision of if we're going to go with him or not. Is that correct? 25th. So the 25th we'll have a church business meeting and we'll um, vote on his interim position or not. I think that's all the announcements. Did I miss one? It's a lot. That's why I write them down. Um, so the psalm for today, I picked Psalm 23. I don't want you to check out because, oh, it's Psalm 23, read it all the time. 
I love the picture it builds of Jesus being that shepherd and keeping the sheep on the right track, in line when they need to be. My favorite part of that psalm is when it talks about the rod and the staff, which are two very different tools. You know, the rod comes in to keep danger away and to beat off the wolf and the bear and the lion. The staff is there when I start to stray to pull me back in and to really keep that herd together, that flock together, when things get tough to keep us together, keep from straying. So the rod keeps back the danger and that staff keeps us together to tough times. So Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for being the God that you are. We praise your name in everything. We thank you that you're the God of yesterday, of today, and of tomorrow, and that you never end. Guys, we come today in a house of believers. We acknowledge the fact that, God, this is a house full of sinners that have come here to praise you and worship you. And we just ask you to fill this place with yourself today. And we pray that the words that Pastor Lee would bring would be your words and your truth from your word. God, we thank you for everything you do for us. We thank you for the blessings you've given us for your son dying for our sins. And all God's people said, amen. I said I would mute, unmute myself and I forgot to do it. How many of you in your life as a believer or even as an unbeliever have ever experienced something that you could call a mountaintop experience? Raise your hand if you've ever had a mountaintop experience. We've all had them, probably. And some of us have recognized it and some of us didn't recognize it. But we've all been on that mountain figuratively, and maybe some of us have been on that mountain literally. I remember before I went into the military, our last pastorate was in Arvada, Colorado at Sierra Baptist Church. Arvada, Colorado is just east of Boulder, Colorado, which sits right at the foothill of the Rocky Mountains. And so we got up into the mountains quite a bit to hike and and to just experience God's grandeur and beauty and majesty of the Rocky Mountains. You might have your favorite mountains. They might be the Rocky Mountains. They might be the Great Smoky Mountains. They might be the Adirondack Mountains. They might be the mountains of Elgin, Iowa. But there are mountains all around us. And those mountains seem to draw us. And those mountains say things to us from the eternal perspective of God Almighty. This morning, I want us to just think for a few moments before we celebrate communion about a mountaintop experience that occurred in Jesus' life along with his three disciples, Peter, James, and John. The transfiguration of Jesus. It's not a subject, and we, we preach about, I preach through the Gospels, and many times, through many years, 
This year, believe it or not, I have this hard to believe myself, but this year, the end of May, will be my 50th anniversary of ordination. Unbelievable that I could have lived that long, <laughs> let alone have we been ordained for 50 years in May, right down the street at First Baptist Church, May 25th, 1974. In all those years of preaching, I don't know how many times I preached on the Transfiguration, but I don't think they were very many. I preached on the baptism of Jesus, preached on the crucifixion of Jesus, preached on the resurrection of Jesus, preached on the coming back of Jesus, preached about everything in between, preached about his birth and everything in between. But very rarely, specifically, was the transfiguration of Jesus ever addressed. Maybe that's not all that unusual in non-liturgical churches. But in those churches that are of the more liturgical persuasion, that follow the preaching plan of the church calendar, which begins with Advent, and then moves to Christmas, and then moves to Epiphany, and then moves to the Transfiguration, and then moves to what? Ash Wednesday, Lent, Good Friday, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the going back to the Father, and then all the Sundays of Jesus and his kingdom, and then finally back again, starting it all over with Advent the next year. Somehow or other, when we don't follow that church calendar, we miss certain things along the way. So I made a conscious decision as I was thinking about what to share this morning that I would just go to the common lectionary and see what the scripture was for today because I didn't really know. And the scripture today is from Mark chapter 9 beginning with verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him And led them up a high mountain, where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for, for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them, gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. I'm going to stop there. This was a true mountaintop experience. Many times Jesus went to the mountain. Many times he went there by himself to pray, perhaps. I know it doesn't specify in all the times when Jesus went out by himself to a lonely place to pray that it was on a mountain, but there probably were times when he was in the vicinity that he went. 
The context of this passage of scripture is important, however, for us to understand the transfiguration. We need to understand what went before it and led up to this moment in time. And if we go back to chapter 8, and I didn't give, give these verses to the sound person, so you'll just have to follow along in your own Bibles or listen as I read them. But if we go back to chapter 8, we have the chapter beginning with the feeding of the 4,000 and all the lessons that were learned by the disciples through that. Then we have the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida, who came to Jesus, and Jesus put his hands on, spit on the man's eyes, and put his hands on him, and he asked in chapter 8, verse 23, Do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. So once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. And that's followed immediately by Peter's confession of Christ. He takes, Jesus takes his disciples and he goes to the villages around Caesarea Philippi up in the north part of the country. And he asks the question of the disciples. If you've been in Sunday school for any length of time, if you've come to these services for any length of time, if you're a Christian, you know what that question was that Jesus asked his, his disciples. So tell me, what was the question? Who do people say that I am? And they responded, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others say one of the prophets. And then Jesus personalizes it and looking right into their eyes says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered in the Mark text, you are the Christ. In the Luke text, you are the Christ of God. In the Matthew text, you are, I better go back and quote it here. Better read it so I get it right. Uh, forgive me. He says, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And in Matthew's version, or rendition of this account, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is heaven in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So they confess him. Peter specifically confesses Jesus as the Son of God, as Messiah, as the Christ. And that's followed then by Jesus going to a dark place. And he begins to talk about what is going to happen. From everything that I can figure out as I study scripture and read people more smarter than I am, these events are taking place in the last six months of Jesus' life. So he's been with his disciples for Three years at this point in time, teaching them, doing miracles, raising the dead, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, feeding the multitudes, pronouncing the forgiveness of sins, announcing and performing that the kingdom of God is among you. And he's been training them up, so to speak, for three years. And now as he's accelerating the timetable toward Jerusalem, which is going to be taking place in just a few months, He's beginning to reveal himself a little bit more completely and a little bit more fully to his disciples. Bringing them in on the plan. 
bringing them in on what he really came to do and how that's going to happen. So in chapter 8, he says, he begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law. He must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and what was the response of at least one of the disciples? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And that led then into talking about what a disciple is going to have expected of him or her. What is going to be our responsibility. Take up our cross. Deny ourselves. Follow him. Don't look at saving your own life, but look at living your life for Jesus and for the gospel. And then he says, finally, before we get to the text under consideration, I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death's death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. So all of that has built up as a background context to the transfiguration event. So having all that been accomplished, Jesus gives it about a week to kind of simmer and stew and let the disciples begin to process it and think about it and wonder what it means and ask each other what it could mean and speculate what it could mean. And after six days, then, he takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, to go up into the mountain. Why did Jesus take these three disciples and not the other nine? Or three other ones besides Peter, James, and John? What was so special about them that they got to go with him? Not just in this instance, but in other places in Scripture. They are the three. They are the chosen ones. Peter, James, and John. I don't know that what was any more special about them than the other disciples, except maybe this. They were the first three chosen. If you go back, when Jesus is choosing his disciples, the first one he comes upon by the lakeside is Simon, who becomes Peter the Rock. And he says, follow me. And Peter, Simon, leaves his nets and follows Jesus. And a little bit further along the lake shore, he sees James and his brother John, the sons of Zebedee. And he chooses them and says, come, follow me. And they follow. And then we have the rest of the disciples kind of tag along. Matthew is chosen specifically, and the others are named among them till they get to the 12. So the 12 are very special. They are kind of the creme de la creme, the cream of the crop. Because earlier, when Jesus is choosing his disciples, he calls all of the disciples. I don't know how many were following him, but he calls them all together again, up on the mountain, if I'm not mistaken. And out of those, he chose the ones that he wanted to mentor in a very special way. And those first three that were chosen were Peter, James, and John. Maybe that's the only reason he chose them instead of the other nine, any of the other nine. I don't know. But he chose those three, and they went up onto the mountain. I want to return to the mountain theme again. What is the significance of the mountain? Why did he take them up into the mountain? Why didn't he just go out to the lake? Or why didn't he just go rent a Holiday Inn meeting room or something? 
Why the mountain? Why was it so important to take them up the mountain? Well, the significance of mountains is very significant <laughs> in Scripture. The mountains in the Old Testament are a symbol of stability and strength. The psalmist says, I look unto the hills, unto the mountains, from whence my help comes, from where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who slumbers, he who, uh, he, he who does not sleep, he never slumbers. Psalm 121. The mountains are stability and, and strength as far as the Old Testament nation is concerned. Special things happen on the mountain. The mountains are where God chooses to commune in a very powerful and intimate way with the people of his nation. The mountains are where God does great things and humans have close encounters. Not close encounters of the third kind or whatever that movie was many years ago, but close encounters of the spiritual kind with the almighty God of the universe on the mountaintop. Moses was on the mountain of Horeb, at least at the foothills of the mount of Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, when God called him through the burning bush. Moses was on the mountain of Horeb, Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, and later on in chapter 34, when he received the tablets with the Ten Commandments and the laws as God gave them. And great things happened. Moses came off the mountain on that second experience and his face radiated and just shone, shone so brightly that the rest of the people couldn't look upon it and he had to put a veil over his face while he was with the people until he could go back in the presence of God again. Elijah was on the mountain of Mount Carmel when he had the confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And God did a, did a great work and all these hundreds of prophets of Baal couldn't call down fire from their gods. They danced, they slashed, they talked, they did everything to try to beg God. You can go back into the book of First Kings if you want to read all about that. But finally, after all that had been done, then Elijah came on the scene, let me show you my mountaintop God. He killed the sacrifice. He put it on the altar. He dug a pit around it. He told him, fill the pit up with water. They did. Fill it up with water. They did. Fill it up with water. They kept filling it with water until it was so full that it saturated everything and water was cascading down the side of the mountain. And then Elijah called on the Almighty God of the universe and God came through and with great fire and lightning consumed the sacrifice, consumed the altar, licked up all the water and just absolutely made desolate that place where the sacrifice had been placed, put. The mountain was a place where God communed in great intimacy and in great power with the people that he called to the mountain. And if that's not enough, we get to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down, that is Jesus. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, all the Beatitudes and everything that followed. The mountains were a very significant place for God to become very powerfully known to his people and to those who didn't know him and to commune intimately with those 
that sought him. And so on that mountain, Jesus is with his disciples, and it just says they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before him, before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Something happened to Jesus on the mountain. I can't imagine what it was other than how it's described here. But God revealed himself in a most intimate, powerful, spectacular, amazing, fearful, to the disciples at least, way. When Jesus was transfigured, the word is transformed, the word is metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. How many of you know what metamorphosis is? Raise your hand if you know. I don't, I'm not going to ask you to tell me, but raise your hand if you know. Well, for those of you who didn't raise your hand, I'm going to assume you don't know. And metamorphosis is the process by which a caterpillar crawls along and looking as ugly as life can make it look, eating all kinds of stuff to sustain itself until it gets to the point where it spins the what? Cocoon around itself or the chrysalis around itself. And then attaches itself to a branch of a tree or underneath a leaf or wherever it may be and stays in that state for whatever the period of time is that God has designated for that species of moth or butterfly. And at the appropriate time, it breaks out of that chrysalis and it looks like a caterpillar, just like it did when it went in. No. What does it look like? A beautiful butterfly or a beautiful moth in all of the radiant glory that God would create those butterflies to look. So I went from something that was, humanly speaking, rather ugly and gross to something that was very, very beautiful. Now, I'm not saying Jesus was ugly and gross. Don't get me wrong. But the process was the same. What happened with Jesus happened from within. When Moses went up onto the mountain and he came down and his face was so radiant, or later on after they built the tabernacle and he went into the tent of meeting and the cloud of God's Shekinah glory was over him and he walked out and his face was shining so brightly, that was Moses merely reflecting the glory of God around him. There was nothing that transformed within him. It was a reflection of all that glory. But in Jesus' situation... Jesus is 100% man, but he's also what? 100% God. And when Jesus came, Paul tells us in the letter to the Philippians in chapter 2 that he did not count being equal with God as something to be grasped or held on to. But he humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant and was obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and given to him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. Both on the earth and under the earth, to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus, having this divinity within him, had willingly kind of set it aside in many ways, emptied himself, as Paul says, and when the disciples looked at him, they just saw a man. Just like if they looked at me or you and one of you were there, they would just see a man or a woman or a young person. But when God came and revealed himself in the transfiguration of Jesus from the inside, 
He was transfigured. He was transformed. And that came to show on the outside. So his clothes became whiter than any purest white. His face was dazzling. If you look at the pictures that are painted in Scripture of the transfigured Jesus in his glory after the resurrection and in his glory which will there be there when he comes back to take us unto himself, it's a picture that's quite awesome. When, you look at the, when we look at the book of Revelation, I had said I was going to preach a shorter sermon to myself, but it's not working that way. When we look at the letter to the churches and we get to Revelation, in the first chapter, John writes in verse 13, And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Talk about something that would be awesome to see and yet at the same time very scary to see, I can understand why the disciples were afraid. I can understand why, according to one of the other gospel writers, they fell down prostrate before him because of what they were observing. Brighter than the brightest sun, whiter than the whitest white, radiating the divinity of God within himself, the glory of God coming from within himself to all those that happened to see him. Granted, it was only momentary, this glimpse of the glory that God would show through Jesus when he comes again in power to take his church home and when he reigns forever on the throne. God is light. He doesn't have a human body like we have. We anthropomorphize. Yeah, what? Use that big word where we put human... A human body on God. Jesus had a human body. He's got a spiritual body now, and maybe he'll still be recognized in heaven as that. I don't know, as a body. But at any rate, this, this, John tells us in his first letter, God is light. And if we walk in him in the light as he is in the light, we will have union with him. So here these disciples are up on the mountain, and Jesus is transfigured. This process of metamorphosis is going on within him. And in the process of all that happening, then two other dudes show up on the scene. Guys that have been dead for centuries. One who didn't die, excuse me. That was Elijah. Again, go back and read your Old Testament stories if you don't know it. Elijah was out walking, and he said, this is going to be the day, and... He's with Elisha, his follower, his, his, his successor. And God comes down in a chariot of horses and a chariot of fire and he takes Elijah up in the chariot and Elijah goes up to heaven without dying. But these two dudes, Elijah and Moses, Moses who is the original leader of the children of Israel, the one who went up onto the mountain, communed with God, one-on-one -on -one with God, arm-wrestled with God, did all these things with God, and was the lawgiver according to the nation of Israel. These two guys come to the mountain. Jesus in all of his transfigured glory. Jesus in all of his brightness as the divine son of God. And they come and they're visiting with him. 
Now, Mark doesn't tell us what they talked about, but Luke in his account does. Luke tells us that Moses and Elijah, well, let me go over and read it. It's in Luke chapter 9 as well as Mark. Luke chapter 9, verse 30. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor. So they themselves were basking in the light of God's glory, talking with Jesus. What did they talk about? They spoke about his, that is Jesus, his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So Moses and Elijah meet with Jesus in this mountaintop experience where Jesus reveals himself and gives a glimpse to his disciples of who he really is. Even though Peter has confessed him that to that effect just about a week before, didn't really get it yet because he rebuked Jesus right after that for saying he was going to die. And now as they're together up there, Luke says that these two guys were talking to Jesus about what was going to happen. Didn't they already know that Jesus knew what was going to happen to himself? Why would they feel like they needed to tell, hey Jesus, just want to let you know, guy, this is what's going to happen to you. If you don't already know, you're going to die. And Jesus saying, yeah, I know that. I was telling the brothers about that and they wouldn't believe me and one of them took me aside. I mean, humanly speaking, we can form that conversation however we want. Without being sacrilegious or being too simplistic about it, they were there to, I believe, encourage Jesus in this moment. To give him a bit of strength in this moment for the task ahead of him. Later on, when we get closer to the crucifixion, I'm not going to be here, so I can't preach on that, so I'll fast forward. Later on, when we get closer to that, we have the, the night when the communion was instituted, and Jesus goes out to Gethsemane, and he's in prayer out there, and he's saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So they were there, I believe, to encourage Jesus, even as the Father encouraged Jesus with the words that he said right after that. This is my beloved Son. Where else do we hear the words of God saying that very same thing? Where? At his baptism. So at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, God shows up at his baptism and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And now at almost the end of his ministry, as he's glorified in all of the Father's glory, and as Moses and Elijah are speaking to him, and as the disciples are probably trying to figure out what in the world's going on here, especially in light of the fact that Peter says, Hey, I got an idea. This mountaintop experience is so great. Let's just stay up here. And I'll build a booth for you, and I'll build a booth for Moses, and I'll build a booth for Elijah, and we'll just stay up here in the fellowship of this mountain experience, and it'll never end. And so God's voice comes out of the cloud and says, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. The disciples needed the transfiguration as well. 
because they needed to, at least these three needed it, they needed to be able to see once and for all that Jesus is who he has always been claiming to be and who he's been trying to convince them that he is. And having heard that, and having heard the command of God the Father from the cloud, they went out of there and everybody lived happily ever after and they never had another problem the rest of the way, right? No. They still didn't get it. They left. They still bickered. They still fought. They still discussed things. They still wondered what was happening. They still turned their backs and fled when Jesus was arrested with the exception of Peter, who stayed behind, but even then he denied him three times. So they confessed, Peter specifically confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said the right words, didn't he? But his actions didn't necessarily follow up the words that he'd said. He needed that experience of seeing Jesus for who he really, really was, to be encouraged and to be strengthened. Even as I believe Jesus in his humanity, even though he is 100% God, I believe Jesus in his humanity also, in a sense, needed the encouragement and the strengthening and the validation of God the Father's words to him. Reminding him at the end, almost, as he did at the beginning, you are my son. Which means Jesus is divine. So that's the story. That's what happened in all of its glory. So what? So what? That was great for Peter, James, and John. It was great for Moses and Elijah. And it empowered Peter, James, and John to go forth from there and ultimately to bring the gospel to the farthest parts of the world, with the exception of James. James was martyred in the book of Acts, we find that. But Peter went on to write First and Second Peter. John went on to write the Gospel of John and the book of the Revelation. First John, Second John, Third John. They had illustrious careers ahead of them, and it all started not only with their call, but it was affirmed in what happened on the mountain, I believe. In spite of the ups and the downs, Eventually, they had to come off the mountaintop. So here's the takeaway. It has nothing really to do with everything that I've said to this point. But just very briefly, here's the takeaway. And it comes from the words of God the Father to Jesus the Son. When he says, this is my Son whom I love, listen to him. I can phrase that in two different ways, depending on where I put, which syllable I put my emphasis on. I can say, listen to him. Or I can say, listen to him. Either way works. Peter, James, and John, and specifically Peter, maybe he's the one that was really being targeted by God more than anybody else but especially to Peter because of what he had just said in the right words but not in the actions when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You got the things in, of the world in mind, not the things of God. You want a Messiah that's going to come riding in on a white stallion and overthrow Rome. That's not what I'm about. My Messiahship is going to come through death. 
through denial, through sacrifice, through willingly following the plan that God has laid out for me, by listening to my Heavenly Father and then fulfilling what He wants me to do. And so when God says, listen to Him, the word that is used there in the Greek carries with it more than just receiving the words on my auditory nerves and having them go up into my brain and compute a word that's got some sort of meaning to it. It carries with it the meaning of obeying what I hear. Parents, how many times have you said to your kids, listen to me? And how many of your kids, when you've said, you've said what you're going to say, and then you say, listen to me? And you say what you're going to say, and your kids immediately listen, and they go and do exactly what mom or dad said, listen to me, what they wanted them to do. It doesn't always work that way, does it? doesn't work that way in husband and wife relationships either. We hear what we want to hear. We filter things through our own filter. And we don't always respond in the right way to what we have heard. So Jesus, or I mean God is saying, listen to him. He's saying he's got the truth. He not only is the way, the truth, and life, but he's got the truth. Listen to him. Listen to what he's saying. And by listening, then follow through and do something about it. How well do we listen? Read all these wonderful Bible stories and they're marvelous and we just get all wrapped up and we get all excited about them. And then comes the message. And the message isn't one I want to hear. When God speaks, it's not always what I want to hear. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees are going to all be against me. They're going to arrest me. They're going to take me down to the cross. I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise again. No, 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 no. Time out, time out, time out. That's not the way it works. You're going to suffer for your faith. If I suffered, you're going to suffer. If they did this to me, they're going to do it to you. Nope, 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 nope. I just want tiptoe through the tulips and the daisies and everything, flowers and fluff and wonderful. I want to just accept Jesus as my Savior and everything's going to be fine. It's going to be good. I'm never going to have another, never going to have another problem in my life. And the scriptures, the word of God, from both from the lips of Jesus and the pen of the writers, doesn't tell that kind of story. Yes, we will be blessed. And yes, there will be great things that happen, but there will also be challenging and not so pleasant things to happen. And when we listen to God, we don't always hear what we want to hear. And when we don't hear what we want to hear, we ignore it. And when we hear what we don't want to hear, we ignore it. And we're not listening, because listening carries with it some sense of obedience. And in listening and in obeying to what we, what we hear, that's when we find the presence and the intimacy and the power and the glorious splendor of Jesus shining in us and through us. Blessed are those who hear the words of God and do them. Those people will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells that parable. Those who listen, hear, and listen, and obey are like the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. The winds come, the storms come, the winds howl, the floods rage, and the house stays firm. 
Because they've listened to where their strength comes from and they've responded to that. But those who hear the words of God, of Jesus, and don't listen and don't respond and don't obey are like the man who builds his house on the sand. The winds come, the rains blow, the floods rise up, and the house is washed away and great is the fall of it. So listen, and in listening, respond. One final verse before I conclude and we go to communion. James, one of the three that was on the mountain, writes in his letter some words that should be familiar with every single one of us if we spend any time in church at all. But in James chapter 1, beginning with verse 22, James writes these words, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word, but does not do what it says, is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself goes away, and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Does this mean if you stumble and you fall and you mess up and you forget and you don't obey and you, yet you've heard and you, you still refuse to obey that, okay, fine, I'm, I'm, I'm a goner, I'm done, there's no hope for me. Might as well just give up on me, Jesus. I can't get it. No, Jesus will come and lift us up. Jesus will, confess, will, will, will um, forgive us when we confess. Will forgive us when we admit that we're not always where we need to be and not always doing what we need to do. But we're trying. The emphasis is in with the power of the Holy Spirit, we try. We press forward. We seek to receive the message and then accomplish the message within our own life. And when we mess up, we count on the grace of Jesus, the wonderful grace of Jesus that has freed us, that has forgiven us, that empowers us, that has promised us a future and a hope and taken away the despair so if God has been speaking to you in some way in these months and days preceding my time up here, if he has been speaking to you clearly or not so clearly about something you need to be doing, a decision you need to be making, a change, confessing, repenting, forgiving, whatever it may be, remember the words of God the Father to Jesus the Son and there through him to the disciples. Listen to him. Listen. And follow through that listening with action. And the God of peace will be with you. And the God of strength will empower you. And the God of hope will lead you on. Father God, I just pray now as we go to the time of celebrating the table that you have put before us. As we reflect upon the great sacrifice that you have accomplished on our behalf, that we would open our ears 
in our hearts to you. And as you speak, or continue to speak, or choose to speak, may we have the spiritual ears to hear, to discern what it is that you're asking, and then the courage to move forward in action on that which you have called us to be and do. These things I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.